So there are three readings. Um, The first one is Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second reading is Mark 10, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The third reading is Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today will be, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lydia. What we've been doing this fall is we have been trying to wrap our heads around this massive concept that is in the Bible, and the concept, this theme, is the theme called the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. And uh, we've seen, as we have looked at this thing from lots of different angles, that um, the kingdom, the, the idea behind the kingdom is really about God's reign. It's about God's rule. We've, we've been referring to it as, a, as God's revolution. It's, it's God's upside down, already not yet. Uh, surprisingly successful revolution of God making all things new. And we we have hinted at the answer to this question, but we haven't directly addressed the question yet, which we're going to try to answer this morning, which is, who populates the kingdom? And you say, oh, it's, it's, um, it's Christians, I guess, people who follow Jesus. Well, sure, but okay, if you take all of the followers of Jesus in the world, you put them all together, you would have this massive group of it's very diverse, cross-cultural, multiracial, multi-generational body of people. And you look at a group like that and you think, okay, what, what unites a group like this together? What, is the, what, is, what does a group like this have in common? Because on the surface, it's, okay, it's not, their, it's not their race, it's not their politics, it's not their socioeconomic status, it's, what, what is it? And so that's, uh, that's what I want to try to get at this morning. Th- three questions to try to answer that one question. Who gets the kingdom? Why do they get it? And how you can get it? So those are the three questions we're going to try to tackle. Who, who gets the kingdom? Why them? And how can you? So first, um, who? Who gets the kingdom? Who actually shows up? Who populates the kingdom? And um, as Lydia read for us, there's, there's three different passages here, three different pictures that I want to show you that where, where the Bible answers that question. The first one, the first picture is from Matthew 5. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, blessed or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to those who are poor in spirit. Now, that's a 
phrase we don't really throw around a ton. So what does that mean? Well, if you think about somebody who is uh, economically poor, financially poor, that's, that's somebody who does not have uh, financial resources. They're unable to provide for themselves. They're unable to kind of take care of their own needs. In some ways, they're, they're dependent on other services or other people, other, uh, you know, people's charity or whatever. But if you take that concept out of the financial realm and you put it into the spiritual realm, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to be spiritually impoverished, where you don't have the, the spiritual resources that you need. You're unable to provide for yourself spiritually. In other words, when it comes to your relationship with God, you're on welfare. You're a charity case. You contribute nothing to this dynamic. Now, years ago, I was leading a Bible study with a bunch of college freshmen, and we were looking at this passage in particular, and we were talking about this and explaining what does it mean to be poor in spirit, and I just asked them, uh, you know, what are your reactions to somebody who, who is poor in spirit, spiritually impoverished, spiritually bankrupt? What, like, what do you think about them? What do you think God thinks about them? And some of the answers I got were, um, they would say, well, I think these are the people that we should feel sorry for. These are the people that we should be, you know, we should have pity for because they're spiritually bankrupt. I think these are probably the people that Jesus feels most, like, disappointed in. And I'm kind of listening to these answers, and it's like, okay, that's interesting. Here's why that's interesting, guys, because the Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says those people are the ones that are blessed, and they're the ones that get the kingdom. And they're, you know, freshman brains exploded right in front of me. But, you know, that's picture one. It's the poor in spirit. They're the ones who get the kingdom. Okay, snapshot number two. This is from Mark chapter 10. Jesus is doing his public ministry. He's going around doing his thing, and there's a bunch of parents that bring their little kids to Jesus. And Jesus' disciples step in like bouncers, and they're like, whoa, 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 get your kids away from Jesus. Get your snot-nosed annoying brat kids away from Jesus. He's busy. He's important. He's not running a daycare. Leave him alone. And look at, look at verse 14. It says, Jesus was indignant, furious with his disciples. What are y'all doing? Look at what he says. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So here's Jesus saying, well, the kingdom belongs to children. You say, well, okay, what's so special about children? Well, look at how he clarifies this. Uh, the next verse, he says, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, there's something about the experience of being a child that you have to tap into if you're going to participate in the kingdom. What is it? What is so special about children? You say, oh, well, kids are innocent and maybe that's it. You've got to be pure. You've got to be innocent. And if you have children, you'll know that's not true. That's not the, uh, that can't be it. So, so what's he talking about? Um, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that children are incredibly needy. Children are bottomless pits of need. They're just, they're just vulnerable. They're totally exposed to the world. They, they need you to take care of them for everything. And then they get older, and the, the need doesn't go away. They can just start verbalizing it. Mommy, where are my shoes? Daddy, can I have another glass of water? Mommy, uh, I need to go to the bathroom. Uh, Daddy, uh, can I get some ice cream? Just needs, 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 needs. And what's fascinating, children have zero shame about it. Not embarrassed at all about the fact that I just need you to do everything for me. 
And Jesus is saying, that's it. You got to tap into that experience of feeling that vulnerable, that out of control, that dependent on me as your caretaker, as God as your caretaker for everything. There's a, uh, there's a Christian song, Christian hymn that was written in the 1870s. It's called, I Need Thee. It's old-timey, King Jamesy kind of language. I need you. It's a song directed to God. I need you. And uh, we sing it sometimes. We've sung it, you know, years ago here. Sometimes we sing it in different, you know, Christian circles. It comes out of the 1870s, and we sing it again. But um, the chorus goes like this. It goes, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. And you think, that sounds like a song about addiction. Like, I can't get through this next hour without you. And yet, that's the idea. That's what Jesus is saying. When you tap into that level of neediness, vulnerability, dependence, I I cannot get through this next hour without you. Oh, yours is the kingdom. All right, snapshot three. What's picture three? Picture three is um, Luke 23. Jesus is being executed between two thieves. Uh, Our translation says it's two criminals, which is more accurate because thieves, thievery wasn't a capital offense in and of itself, which means these guys did uh, far worse than just stealing. They probably murdered people and then stole their stuff. So these two guys that Jesus is being executed between, not good dudes, really bad dudes, and one of them is looking at Jesus and starts screaming. I said, Jesus, if you're like so awesome, if you're the Christ, then save us. Get us down from here. We're going to die unless you do something. And then the other criminal yells, at the other criminal that's yelling at Jesus, and he says this. Look at verse 40. He says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, meaning we're being sentenced fairly. We're guilty. He keeps going. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. So you hear what he's saying? He's saying, dude, do you not get it? We're getting what we deserve. If he's God, he's not going to just let us off the hook. We've got to pay for this. He realizes he is completely guilty. He's a bad dude. And so look at what he says next, verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He acknowledges his guilt, no disclaimers, no, no uh, asterisks, no, no, no explanations. He's just like, I'm totally getting what I deserve. And Jesus, I'm throwing myself at your mercy. Will you remember me when you die and you go into your kingdom? Because I'm out of time. I don't have any more time. There's no more runway for me to live more life, to do more good things, to try to balance out all the terrible bad stuff I've done in my life. I got nothing. I'm at the end of the rope here. Will you have mercy on me? And listen to what Jesus says to him. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Murderer gets into the kingdom. Now, this is one of the big critiques that people have against Christianity because if you're a Christian, if you've ever explained the concept of grace before, that God saves people completely by grace without any reference to their works or their merit, anything that they've ever done, you hear that for the first time and you start processing it and you, you say, okay, wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me you can just live your entire life doing whatever you want, just sex, drugs, and cocoa puffs, and whatever you want to do, you rob people, murder people, 
And you're telling me you wait to the last minute, you, at your last breath of your life, you just embrace Jesus by faith, and you get into the kingdom? You get to go to heaven? That's crazy. Your religion makes no sense. Why would anybody want to do that? Or, or uh, what's the motive to be good or follow or obey or anything? And I get it. It's a jarring, it's jarring when you hear it, and yet it's right there. It's in the Bible. Here's a guy, murderer, terrible, awful, lived his whole life being, hurting people, and it gets to the very end, and he just embraces his guilt, throws himself at mercy, and Jesus says, you're in the kingdom. So you put those three snapshots together. You've got the poor in spirit, you've got needy children, and you've got a murderer who owns his guilt and throws himself at the mercy of Jesus, and you start to see this pattern emerge. And in fact, if you read through the New Testament, you see this pattern continuing to emerge that the people that respond, the people that get the kingdom, the people that embrace this concept of grace tend to be the people that are at the edges of society and the people that are at the bottom of society. People like lepers, people like tax collectors, uh, prostitutes, addicts, um, failures, losers, sinners, the people that nobody else wants to associate with, and the pattern also emerges that the people that tend to be the most resistant to the idea of grace, the idea of the kingdom, the most threatened by it, the most uh, hostile to it, are the people at the top of society, the people that have the power, the people that have the privilege, the people that have the resources. And you start to see this pattern, and you say, okay, if that's who gets the kingdom, why is that? Why is it that the people that are on the sides and the bottom tend to get it more than the people that are at the top? It's a great question. Let's answer that next. Secondly, why are those the ones that get the kingdom? Is it that God just bestows a special status for people who have no status? Does, people God, does, does God look at people that are on the outside, and because they are outsiders, that's what qualifies them? No. If that were the case, it would just be an inverted form of, uh, of exclusion, an inverted form of elitism where only these people, these people are the special ones and everyone else isn't. The, the revolution of the kingdom is that God saves people completely by grace, which means there's no reference at all to somebody's past or their behavior or their life or their status. or anything. It has nothing to do with anything. It's, it's, not even, it's not even part of the equation. That's what grace is. Grace is you receiving something that you didn't deserve. It's just, it's just a complete gift. There's no reference to your accomplishments, to your status, or your money, or anything. It's just a gift, generally speaking. That means if you have nothing, if you have nothing to lose, that concept tends to be more attractive. And, generally speaking, if you have a lot to lose, that idea of grace feels threatening. It feels offensive, and you're resistant to it. Let, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. You may know the name Neil Brennan. He's a famous uh, American comedian, podcaster, writer. And uh, in, in a special that he did, in a stand-up comedy special that he did a number of years ago, he was... Um, in this one particular bit, he's joking about, he's poking fun at his own atheism. He would say he's an atheist, and he pokes fun at his own atheism. He pokes fun at other atheists. And I'm going to read you a little section of his stand-up. Um, it's edgy, so you're warned, but it's funny, 
And but the reason I'm doing this is because I think, I think it's incredibly insightful. He's putting his finger on something. Here's what he says. I know a lot of white atheists. I don't know many black atheists. Not none, just not many. I've got a theory about why there's not many black atheists. Here it goes. Atheism, <clears throat> atheism is really like the height of white privilege. It really is. Because religion basically says, hey, can we interest you in an afterlife? And white people are like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> How much better could it be? I'll just take my supplements and see what happens. It's way more funny when he does it. <laughs> but um, you should see it. It's actually the crowd laughs when he does it. But, it's, um, but you see what he's doing. You see he's putting his finger on this grace principle. I told you it was edgy, but he's, he's on to something because he's saying, okay, in our, in our country, in American history, you have a group of people, you have a, a people of a certain race that have had a really hard experience. And maybe that's a reason why if you're offering people of color who have experienced oppression and pain and suffering the idea of a free afterlife, it's amazing. That sounds attractive. They're open to that. Meaning, generally speaking, the less privilege you have, the more open you'll be to grace. And conversely, the more privilege you have, the more comfort you have, the more resistant you are to this. Why, why, why would I be drawn to this? Things are amazing for me. I don't need this. That's the idea. In fact, you see this grace principle playing out on a world scale. Uh, if you think about our current cultural moment, it's really easy for Christians in America in 2023 to start citing stats about the decline of the church, the decline of Christianity in America. And all those stats are true. I'm not going to pull them all out, but, you know, you can look at all the stats of this percentage of many people haven't returned back to church after COVID, and this many churches are closing, and this, you know, people that are identifying themselves as Christians today is way lower than it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And the number of people that are identifying themselves as nuns are increasing. Not nuns, N-U-N-S, Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, as in like you're taking a survey, what is your spiritual affiliation? None. That's more and more people are clicking none. I have no spiritual affiliation, no kind of interest in spirituality at all. You, it's easy for us to start to see all these statistics, and if you're a Christian, to be discouraged by that. If you zoom out, though, and look at the world map, Christianity is exploding and growing and spreading by leaps and bounds in other parts of the world, specifically in the southern hemisphere, if you're looking at a globe, as it were. Places like Africa, places like South America, different you know, places in Asia. So you have Christianity on a decline in parts of the world where there are resources, where there are privileged places like America, places like Europe, and you have Christianity exploding in parts of the world that tend to be under-resourced, tend to be more impoverished. And you say, well, that's interesting. Why is that? What do they have that we don't? I'll tell you what they have that we don't. Need. You know, I've said this before. For all of my years of doing pastoral ministry and hearing people tell me their stories of why they became a Christian, why they embraced Jesus by faith. 
I've never heard anybody tell me a story that went like this. Uh, things were going amazing. My marriage was thriving. I got a promotion at the, my office. I got, uh, our, we bought our dream home. We went on vacation to France. It was incredible. So I decided to become a Christian. I decided to embrace Jesus by faith as my personal Lord and Savior. It's never happened. I'm, ne- I'm sure there are stories like that. I've never heard one. The stories that I've heard over the years go like this. Well, I became a Christian. I embraced Jesus by faith because I was suicidal, because I was depressed, because I had hit rock bottom with my addiction, because my family was imploding, because uh, I, have, I lost a relationship that was really meaningful to me. Or I've heard people tell the story as well where it's like, I got all the things. I got the promotion or I got the vacation. I got all the stuff, and it was so empty. It didn't fulfill me like I thought it would. And so out of desperation, I reached out to Jesus for something better. This is why Christianity is the most inclusive religion or worldview or philosophy or outlook there is because it says anybody can come. Anybody. You don't have to be from a certain race. You don't have to um, have a certain political orientation. You don't have to have a certain sexual orientation. You don't have to come from a certain demographic, a certain type of socioeconomic uh, status. You don't have to be a certain gender. You don't, all you need is need. You just bring your need to Jesus. Anybody can do that. Somebody who sleeps on the street and doesn't have a penny to their name can do that. And a high-powered CEO with the France and the vacations and all this stuff, like they, they can do that too. The reality is, though, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost this person who's the high-powered CEO a lot more. Because to admit to yourself and to others, I actually need a savior, that kind of privilege, that kind of power, that kind of resources acts like barriers. It's hard to get in touch with need when you have a lot of stuff. But anybody can do it. You know, somebody who's a murderer on death row can bring their need to Jesus, and somebody who's in church every single week, squeaky clean, never broken a rule in their whole life, they can bring their need to Jesus too. But the reality is it's going to probably cost that person a lot more because that person has an image that they like to uphold about them being good. And to have to name, I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus, I need grace, it's going to cost going to cost you something. So you see the principle there? There, There's the principle there. There, The principle is that in general, this is why people who have failed, this is why people who struggle, this is why people who are in touch with suffering, this is why people who are in touch with their own guilt tend to get the gospel of grace quicker than people who haven't. Now, here's the final question then. Okay, how can you and I get the kingdom then? How can we get it? How can you get it? Because if we're honest and we look around this room, on the surface, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of need. I mean, I'm wearing a tie today, so it looks like it's hard, it's hard to get in touch with need. How can we do it, though? Well, let's talk about it last. Here's how I want to talk about it. I don't know if you've happened to see this TV show. Uh, it's called The Office. And um, there's an episode where one of the employees, Andy, gets fired and he has this total meltdown. He's, 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 you know, his, his insides are a dumpster fire. But 
he is having to project to the world. He wants everybody, he's trying to convince everybody he's good and he's okay. I've, you know, I've, I've, this is great. This works out great for me. I've got a lot more time to work on my rock opera that I'm creating at the moment. And so he's trying to convince everybody he's good. And the episode unfolds where everybody from the office is invited to the silent auction. And it's, uh, they're, they're, um, it's being hosted by this animal rights group. And there's all of these um, hurt and sick dogs that they're trying to have people adopt. And in the middle of this auction, the middle of this thing, Andy stands up and says, I'll do it. I'll adopt them all. I'll take all of them. He just wants everybody to know, see, I'm good. I am capable of doing this. That's how good of a person I am. See how good I am? See how, like, not upset I am? And so the next scene, he's in the back, and the veterinarian is explaining how all 12 of these dogs have different medical needs and dietary needs and all these different things, and here's how to apply this cream where on this particular dog. And um, Andy is sitting there, and he's petting this one dog, and, he's, and he says this. He looks at the vet, and he says, I am so ready to love all of these animals. This one is bonding with me already. And the vet says, oh, yeah, that one's name is uh, Kenny, and he's a therapy dog. And he, um, he must sense that you're in an emotional crisis right now. <laughs> and Andy, you know, kind of awkwardly says, stupid dog. Like, this dog doesn't know what he's doing. But this, this is the idea. He's trying to project to everybody else, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm okay. Don't worry about me. And yet the dog <laughs> just senses uh, that, you know, just, just cuts through all of the deception and beelines towards him right in the middle of his mess. And I bring that up because Jesus is a king that beelines towards mess. He beelines towards dysfunction. He beelines towards need. You know, one of my friends, um, Richie Sessions, uh, who used to be the pastor over at Independent Perez, he's now, he now works for a campus ministry called RUF, he once said that um, need is a sweaty word, which is such a great, it's such a richy sentence if you know who Richie is. It's such a great sentence. Need is a sweaty word, meaning you, when you get around needy people, clingy people, it's like they just came back from the gym and they're all wet and nasty. You kind of hold your nose and you kind of, you want to get away from needy people. You want to get away from the need inside of yourself. I just want to pretend that this is not there. I'll deal with it on my own. I don't want to have to involve anybody else into this. We, we are allergic to need. It's sweaty to us. And Jesus is the exact opposite. He beelines towards need. He beelines towards mess and dysfunction. That's why he came in the first place. In a couple of weeks, we'll start to celebrate Advent. And is the celebration that the God of the universe beeline straight towards dysfunction in a broken planet. And in fact, you see this start to play out in Jesus' own ministry. When he goes into a town, he does not start to look for who are the most politically influential people here that I can connect with and start to network with. Who are the places, uh, who are the people here that have the most influence that I can have dinner over at their house? He shows up, and what does he do? He goes straight towards the poor. He goes straight towards the sick. He goes straight towards the hurting. He goes straight towards the sinful, the people that everybody in that society said, get away, we don't want anything to do with you. They're the people that he beelines towards. So much so, he's the kind of person that didn't just stay in heaven but came down and became weak and became vulnerable and became needy and suffered himself. He gave everything away on the cross. That's why he's on the cross, suffering between these two guys, these two criminals. He's paying for the punishment that you and I deserve, which means he's paying the tab. 
It's like when you go out to dinner with somebody and they say, I got the check and it's already been paid for. It's done. All you have to do now is just eat. It's free. It's paid for. You have to do nothing. You don't have to achieve this. You simply have to receive this. That's what Jesus has done. He shows up and he pays it all and he says, all you have to do is just come. It's already paid for. All you have to do is receive it. What's it going to take for you to receive? Why in the world would you come? You know why you would come? The only reason why you would come is because you're in touch with need. If you go back to that office scene with Andy surrounded by all these dogs, uh, later in the episode, four different characters, Jim and Pam and Aaron and Kevin, they all go in the back to, you know, congratulate him, talk with Andy. And he's kind of grimacing, learning how to put a diaper on a dog. And he's just playing along with the delusion. He's like, you know what? I am so great. And Aaron, who's his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, I don't know if they were dating at the time of this episode, but she says, you know what? He's great. We're all great. And uh, Andy goes, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And Pam is like, yeah, absolutely, yes. I mean, they're all just playing along with the delusion, the denial. This, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. And Kevin, you know, if you know the show, he's not the smartest tool in the shed, the sharpest tool in the shed, ironically. And um, he just kind of cuts through the moment. And here's what he says. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Are you guys nuts? He's not doing great. He was fired. This is terrible. This is literally the worst thing that's ever happened to you, not the best. And the spell is broken, and Andy stands up, and he says, you know what? You're right. You're right. I'm a mess, and I've been trying to convince everybody that I'm okay. And Pam Beasley says this, admitting you need help is the first step. See, even Pam gets it. Even Pam gets it. Admitting you need help is the first step. So how do you get it? How do you get the kingdom? For people like you and me who don't have a great track record of being in touch with need, is we admit we need help. Which means you look beyond the surface and you do an honest inventory of your own heart and you say, okay, if I'm honest deep down, I'm actually quite petty, and I'm entitled to my comfort and my time and my space and my stuff, and I am resentful, and I am easily irritated, and I am very faithless, and I do not trust God for much. I try to control my life. My ego is fragile, easily defensive, and you start to say, okay, I need a Savior to forgive me for all of that, and I need a Savior to transform me so that I'm radically different. You start to analyze your own heart and you say, okay, deep down, for as much, as much as I project happy, fun, go lucky, easy, deep down I'm hurting. Deep down I'm lonely. Deep down I'm, I'm sad, I'm scared. I need a savior who will draw close to me and reassure me of his love for me, reassure me that he does not cast out people like me. If you're unwilling to do that, when you hear about the grace of God, when you hear about the love of God, it will just bounce right off of you. 
in Christianity and church, it will feel so superficial and it will feel so boring and you'll show up and it'll just feel like this exhausting duty, this obligation, oh, I got to go to church again, boring, terrible, awful, maybe some fun moments here and there, but Christianity will just feel like drudgery. And that's how a lot of people go through life, identifying as followers of Jesus. But if you are able to say and to connect this idea, I have a great need for a Savior, and I have a great Savior for my need, you put those two things together, oh my word, you can sing the song Amazing Grace and actually mean it. Because grace is amazing. Grace is thrilling to think, oh my word, this is how the Lord of the universe has related to me? And you know, when that starts to happen, when the gospel of grace actually starts to get integrated into your soul, you start to become somebody who beelines towards need. You start to move towards people that are under-resourced, who are hurting, who are suffering, who are sinners, not from a position of, I'm above these people, but from a position of, I am these people. These are my people. This is the revolution that Jesus is bringing. If you follow Jesus, he will bring you, he will plunge you deeper into suffering, deeper into need, deeper into a sense of, I feel more out of control, I feel, I feel more dependent on God. You start to sing that song, I need thee every hour. I can't get through this hour without you. And that's not, and it doesn't feel like bad news. It feels like good news. You're brought into suffering and weakness and vulnerability. And at the same time, you're actually brought more into freedom. You become more of yourself, more loving, more joyful, more attractive. This is the revolution that Jesus is bringing inside of people. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to admit our own guilt, to admit our own broken hearts, to admit the ways that we have hurt others, admit the ways that we ourselves are hurting And I pray that you would give us the confidence to bring those things to a Savior that does not reject people like this, but beelines towards people like this. A Savior that is irresistibly drawn towards hurt and need and sin and suffering and dysfunction. You are a Savior that is infinitely better than we could ever imagine. We intuitively think you want nothing to do with us. You're repelled by people like us. When we screw up, we assume you want to run away, and yet what we see in the gospel is in some mysterious way, it, it, it triggers you to run towards. Would you overwhelm and overthrow our resistance to the gospel of grace that we might be participants in the kingdom, people who gladly, willingly also beeline towards the need in our city? And we pray all this in the name of our King, the Lord Jesus. Amen.